ride for a 10-year-old. Um, it was the middle of summer uh, on the farm where I grew up, um, near the town of Neville. Now, no one's ever heard of where that is, so I helpfully tell them that it's just down the road from Barry. For some reason, most people don't find that helpful. Um, if you're by any small chance you don't know where Neville and Barry are, it's between Orange and Bathurst, about four hours west of Sydney. Uh, anyway, I'm halfway home uh, from my bike ride and I get a flat tyre. Uh, instead of taking the road all the way home, which is about another six kilometres, I decide to take a shortcut through the paddocks. But that involves getting over, throwing, muscling the bike over some fences, trudging through swamps and tall grass. And uh, it was thirsty work, I can tell you. And for about the last 45 minutes of my journey, um, the one thing that kept me going was an image of a tall, cold glass of homemade orange juice that my mum used to make. Uh, it was my one all-consuming goal in life at that point. In today's passage, Jesus uses the imagery of water to tell a Samaritan woman that like drinking water on a hot day, he could satisfy our deepest needs. And rather than looking for meaning and satisfaction in the wrong places, he points to worship, worship, true worship of God, which centres on Jesus himself as being the way to find true satisfaction. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you uh, as we read in today's story that Jesus brings living water. Thank you that he satisfies our deepest needs. And we pray, Lord, as we think about our needs and where we look for satisfaction, that we would land on you as the object of true worship and find our meaning and satisfaction and identity in you alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In today's story, Jesus uses the imagery of water to tell a Samaritan woman... Um, sorry, I just read that. Um, let's get into our story. So, by way of introduction, John tells us at the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 4, that the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of Israel, had got wind of the fact that Jesus was baptising more people than John, John the Baptist. John, the writer of John's Gospel, has already introduced us to John the Baptist as the one who came before Jesus as a kind of a herald. Uh, he, was, he was announcing that Jesus was coming. Jesus hears about what the Pharisees have heard and he decides it's time to get out of town and go up north to Galilee because he fears that the Pharisees are about to stir up trouble and he wants to avoid that at this point. And so we come to our passage. Um, in verse 4, we told that Jesus had to go through a place called Samaria. Samaria is between Jerusalem and Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem was in the south of Israel. Galilee was in the north. Samaria is right in the middle. To go through Samaria was the quickest way to Galilee and that's the way that most people went. It's helpful at this point to have a bit of background about Samaria. Samaritans didn't like Jews and Jews didn't like Samaritans. 
the reasons were historical and religious. Samaria used to be what was at one time the northern kingdom of Israel. Over 700 years before the time of Jesus, Assyria, one of the big neighbouring powers, came and beat up uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and dragged most of its people away into exile. They only left a few people left in the land, but the northern kingdom as a, as, a, as a power, as a nation, was essentially wiped out. The Assyrians then deported a whole heap of foreigners to repopulate the land and then they remarried, intermarried rather, with the people who were left in the land. The future generations were seen by the Jews as being racially impure. They were no longer Jews, they were no longer true worshippers of, of Yahweh, the Jewish God. This new nation became known as Samaria, although politically it wasn't actually a separate nation. So Jesus comes to Samaria and he rests at a place called Jacob's Well where people would come and draw water. It was the sixth hour. That means it was noon, the hottest part of the day. A Samaritan woman comes along to draw water. We might not recognise it straight away, but, geez, but John is alerting us that there's something unusual about this scene. It was customary to, for women to come to the well to draw water, but not at noon. They came at the coolest part of the day. They came at the beginning of the day, the early morning or the late afternoon when it was cooler. And they usually came together. Here was a woman coming at noon on her own. John is hinting something that is later made clear. This woman wasn't one of the crowd. She was an outcast. The story continues. She goes to draw some water. Suddenly she's surprised at hearing a voice, a male voice. Jesus asks her for a drink. The fact that she's surprised is shown by her response in verse 9. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's surprised by a double whammy here. As John helpfully adds, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They don't talk to each other. They, they, they go out of their way to avoid each other. So it's just not normal for, Je for Jesus to rock up and talk to this Samaritan woman. But on top of that, she's a woman. In that culture, it just wasn't considered kosher for a man to approach a woman in that way. We've seen little hints already in John's Gospel, though, that Jesus doesn't care about social convention. He doesn't do what's expected. Last week we saw in Nicodemus that Jesus didn't treat, treat him the way that one of Israel's leaders would have expected to be treated. Jesus has no regard for social status. This story comes hot on the heels of that story with Nicodemus. And I think John deliberately wants to paint a contrast between the two stories. 
Nicodemus was Israel's leader, well-respected, influential, powerful. The Samaritan woman was an outcast. For the Jews, an outcast in a society of outcasts. And yet Jesus makes time for them both. In fact, the one who Jesus initiates with isn't Nicodemus, but the woman. He is the one who approaches her. He is the one who engages her in conversation. Jesus recognises no class or gender distinctions. Both the woman and Nicodemus have equal dignity. Both are created in God's image. Well, Jesus keeps engaging the woman. In verse 10, he says that if she knew the gift of God and who it is that you're talking to, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Like with Nicodemus last week, Jesus turns the spotlight onto the woman. Jesus was the one who started off asking for water, but now he's offering her living water. Jesus knows that this woman's thirsty, but not thirsty for water, but for something much deeper. The Samaritan woman thinks that Jesus is is talking about actual water that you can drink which is a reasonable conclusion because the term, we we don't recognise it in English, but the term living water in the Greek language was often used to describe fresh water, running water. And in that context, sitting there at a well, it's, it's not unusual that Jesus would use a term like living water. But then in verse 13, Jesus makes it clear that he's not talking about ordinary water at all that only quenches your thirst for a while, but he's talking about water that satisfies something deeper. He's talking about water that leads to eternal life. Growing up on a farm made me, gave me an appreciation of water. As you know, in Australia, water is such a precious commodity and much of New South Wales is still in the grip of drought. So often we don't have enough, enough water. The effects of drought can be so devastating. I remember seeing sheep and cattle dying in, in, um, as they got stuck in the mud at the bottom of dams trying to get the last remnants of moisture out of, out of the dam. But then when rain came, it would transform the environment almost overnight. What was a dust bowl became a carpet of green and you could almost see the life oozing out of the ground. That picture of water bringing life is an image that is used in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, to point to God saving his people, to point to the work that God does to bring life where previously there was no hope. The prophet Isaiah uses this image time and time again. I just want to look at one Example from Isaiah chapter 35. Read with me. Isaiah 35 verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. 
Isaiah is talking about a time when God would come and intervene to save his people. At the time they were suffering under the oppressive hands of Babylon because they had been dragged off into exile. Because of their disobedience to to God, God was punishing them under the yoke of exile. But Isaiah is announcing their deliverance. God would show up and like rain in the desert, like rain in a drought, he would bring new life, symbolised by physical healing and water and bringing life to the land. And here Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that he can give her living water that brings life. We heard about that last week when Jesus met with Nicodemus. If you were here, remember that Jesus used the picture of water along with spirit to bring about new birth. He told Nicodemus that he would have, um, that he would be born again, born from that he must be born again, born from above. Now Jesus is telling the the woman that she can have that same beginning, that new beginning, new life, eternal life through living water, as he says in verse 15. So this water brings life and it also satisfies. As Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks this water will never be thirsty again. The woman is still thinking on a purely physical level and she's trying to work out how can I, how can I um, have water that, that, that will stop me from having to come to this well. But Jesus is locking onto a deeper need, a need she has for satisfaction and meaning. And this is shown by where he goes with the conversation in the next section. In verses 16 to 18... Jesus subtly hints to the woman that she's been thirsting about the wrong things. Things that ultimately can't satisfy her thirst. Jesus tells her to go and and tell her husband and, and go and bring him here. At this point, the woman starts to squirm in the she's not in the seat, she starts to squirm on the on the sitting on the stone of the well. Because Jesus is starting to hone in on the very thing that makes her an outcast. I don't have a husband, she says. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, but shows her that he knows the whole truth of her life story. You're right when you, when you say that you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the man you are now with isn't your husband at all. What you have just said is quite true. For a woman in that culture to have a husband was a ticket to security and identity. John doesn't spell it out for us, but Jesus' sudden change of subject to put the spotlight in the one area where the Samaritan woman is most vulnerable, where she has invested her heart for security in finding a husband, having a relationship with a man, That's a clue that Jesus is wanting to gently push the woman to find where her thirst is really taking her. As we'll see, what Jesus wants to show her is that the only place that her thirst 
can truly be satisfied isn't in relationship, but it's in something more. Like the whole of the book of John, this story is a wonderful, skillful story that is designed not just to give us a record of of this story of the woman at the well, but at the same time, God is speaking through the words of the Bible that we read in black and white to speak to you and I. And just as Jesus knew the heart of this woman, he also hones in on our deepest needs. We can all relate to the idea of being thirsty, of needing water on a hot day. And each one of us has things that we long for, that we live for, like the woman. Things that would give us meaning, things that we thirst after. Perhaps you're like the woman who looks for security in relationships. I was like that. Back in the dark ages when I was at uni, before I met my wife Julie, the idea of finding a girlfriend and ultimately getting married and settling down was something that dominated my thinking. I was a young Christian and yeah, I knew in my head that only God could satisfy my needs, but in my heart... I still thought that I couldn't really be happy until I found a wife. Or perhaps for you it's your job. It gives you a sense of achievement and satisfaction. You have an identity that goes with your position and you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. Or maybe it's your studies, maybe it's uni or school. Perhaps you're blessed with a good brain and a work ethic that enables you to do well and to get high marks and and, and achieving achieving and, and, and doing well is addictive. Working hard, finding satisfaction in a job or study are good things. A loving relationship, particularly marriage, is a wonderful gift from God. But Jesus wants to warn the Samaritan woman and to tell us that to look for ultimate satisfaction and meaning in anything other than God is setting ourselves up for failure because at the end of the day, it will let us down because these things can't deliver. They can't be God for us. Only God can be God. Well, the conversation continues between the Samaritan woman and Jesus The spotlight that Jesus has put on her personal life at this stage is feeling more like a blowtorch to the woman. And she is desperate to change the subject. She turns to a reliable topic of controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans that she is is confident will uh, divert Jesus' attention for a while. She wants to talk about worship. Specifically, where the proper place of worship to God, where the proper place to worship God is. Jesus goes with a flow and turns the conversation to what true worship is and invites her to see that true worship is found in Jesus in our third section. A bit of background. The Samaritans believed that they that God had established the proper place of worship to be where they were in Samaria, 
a place called Mount Gerizim. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. The rest of, but the, rest of the Old Testament tells us the story um, that the place of worship moved from Samaria eventually to land in Jerusalem. King David set his capital up there. It became the capital of the nation of Israel. And David's son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. From that point, Jerusalem was seen as being the proper place of worship. But the Samaritans didn't believe that. The Samaritans insisted that no, the proper place to worship was on this mountain in Samaria. The woman tries to buy into that controversy and she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. But Jesus will have none of that. He's not going to be drawn into that, that controversy. Instead, he says that, look, actually, this old argument is all irrelevant now because of something that's changed everything. Have a look at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then down in verse 23, yet a time is coming that has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The word here for time is actually hour in the original Greek. It's unfortunate that the NIV, which um, I'm using here, hasn't picked up on that because we lose the effect of the word hour. When Jesus uses the term the hour, as in the hour has come or my hour has come, he is, in John's Gospel, he is almost always referring to his coming death on the cross. And I think that's what he's hinting at here too. Because Jesus' death changes everything when it comes, he, it changes how we worship God. Before, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where the Jews went to worship God. But now, the Son of God is going to the, going to the cross and that is going to change everything. A time is coming and has now come, says Jesus. At this point, the cross is still to come, but God himself has already broken into the world of human beings. Jesus is already here. The king has already come and is just waiting for his coronation with his death and being raised from the dead. So now... Instead of worshipping in Jerusalem or on this mountain or that mountain, the way that we meet with God, the way that we worship him, has changed. Jesus said, says true worshippers now will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Bible refers to God as spirit. And the Bible makes a very clear distinction between spirit and flesh. Flesh referring to everything that belongs to created human beings. And spirit referring to things that belong to God. K. 
coming from God. So the idea here is to worship God as God, to worship God his way rather than our way, to worship him the right way, not a way invented by humans. Now Jesus doesn't explain it for us here, but in John's Gospel we've already come across the reality that worshipping in a particular way as the proper way to worship, has already been done away with. Away with. Specifically, Jesus has signalled that the temple in Jerusalem, which the Jews thought was the proper place to worship, is about to be replaced by something, or rather someone, infinitely greater. It's about to be replaced by Jesus himself, the Son of God, Jesus announced back in chapter 2 in in John's Gospel that destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. He was talking about himself. He would be the new temple. And what he meant by that was that where people must come to meet with God is Jesus himself. He who was fully man and so can fully identify with us and meet with us and relate to us. And at the same time, he is fully God, meaning that he is uniquely qualified to be the gateway between us and God. He's the portal, if you like, the way that we come to meet with God. Where the temple in Jerusalem had gone wrong is that it had turned worship into a human institution, a complex web of human rules and regulations designed to so control worship that it made it into something that was external to the human heart. It made it into a tool where God was kept at arm's length, where God was controlled. The people were worshipping in human flesh rather than in spirit and truth. So Jesus announces to the woman that a new era has come. She still doesn't get it and still tries to to wrap the conversation up by saying that, oh, when, when Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, as a Samaritan, she probably didn't have a full picture of who this Messiah was. He was the promised king who we met last week. One who had all of God's authority to rule over all nations and all peoples of the world. Now the Samaritans had an idea that the Messiah was more of a teacher figure um, and so that's why she says that the Messiah would come and explain everything to them. But once again, Jesus takes the conversation in an unexpected direction. In verse 26, he simply tells the woman, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Now, as with a lot of the narrative in John's Gospel, we're not told straight out exactly what the woman made of this. How much did she understand of Jesus' words? Did everything fit into place for her? Well, we don't really know. But we are given a strong hint that she did come to put her faith in Jesus. Perhaps the penny did finally drop 
Because in our last section, in verses 39 to 42, which we didn't read in our Bible reading, we see that a whole lot of other people from a hometown came to believe in Jesus as well. What happened was that the woman went back into town and eagerly told them everything that Jesus had done. She told her that Jesus explained what a whole life was about. A whole bunch of curious Samaritans then went back to Jesus and they urged him to stay with them for two days. Then we told in verse 41, 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said, that is the woman. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Quite a remarkable grasp of who Jesus is for these Samaritans. They've only known him two days. They recognise that Jesus is the one who saves them, who deals with the fact that they are staring down the barrel of God's anger because of their sin, of their rebellion against him. And what's really significant in their statement is that Jesus is the saviour, not just of Israel, not just of the Jews, God's chosen people, but that he was the saviour of the world. Remember that these Samaritans were, in the eyes of the Jews, they were rejected, they were outcasts. But they recognised that Jesus was their saviour too. And here's the irony of what's happening in John's Gospel up to this point. The Jewish leader back in chapter 3, Nicodemus, the religious expert of God's chosen people, he didn't get who Jesus was. He didn't get what he was about. But these Samaritans, the ones who were supposed to have it all wrong, the ones who didn't understand the Bible... Well, they got it. And John uses this story to introduce the idea that Jesus' coming changes things not only for Israel, not only for God's people, but for the whole world. He came for the world. He died for the world. Back in chapter 3, John says, For God so loved the world, Okay, don't have it. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And now in chapter 4, verse 42, we know this man really is the saviour of the world. Well, let's bring it together. Jesus comes to Samaria. He breaks all the social conventions to engage with an outcast woman from a race of pariahs. He asks her for a drink and tells her that she need never thirst again. Jesus then turns the spotlight onto her heart and hones in on the thing that she really thirsts after, stability and security in a male partner. The woman tries to deflect the spotlight by turning to a tried and true controversy, where to worship. 
Jesus tells her that true worship isn't about a place, but it's centred on worshipping God truly, and that's through himself. I just want to finish off with some thoughts about what this passage means for us. We've already seen that as the woman locked on to looked for her identity and security in the wrong places. For all of us, part of the human condition is to lock onto something to give us these things. And we all naturally turn to the wrong places because our default instinct is to find security in things and, and in people rather than in God. What Jesus was driving the woman to see was that she was looking for satisfaction in the wrong places because she was worshipping the wrong things. And our hearts are restless and land on the wrong things when we worship in the wrong places. Jesus told the woman that worship isn't about a place, a temple or a mountain, it's about himself. She was wanting to externalise worship, to confine it to a mountain in Samaria. It's a very human thing to do and we do it too. Now we may not do it in the same way. We may not think that we can only worship God when we come to church on at 11 o'clock on the Sunday morning but we might try to do it. We might do it in other ways. We try to confine God to certain areas of our life. Maybe, maybe we think that Sunday and Wednesdays are the God times, the times we meet together at church and in community groups. We may subtly make deals with God. God, if I'm involved with these ministries and give up this time for you, then the rest of the time is mine. Compartmentalising, controlling God, keeping him at arm's length. We all do it. But if we're not giving God our whole heart and our whole life, then we will look elsewhere to find real satisfaction and meaning and identity. Maybe it's in a hobby. For me, I struggle with running, struggling not to get obsessed with training for a half marathon that's coming up. I wonder what it is for you. Or maybe you're not yet a believer. Maybe you're struggling with the idea of letting God into your life. Maybe you're struggling with the idea of handing over the reins, handing over control to God. Let me say that I understand that. I also struggled with that once before I became a Christian. But once I let it go, once I let go of the control and said to Jesus, I want you to be king. I want to trust, I want to trust you with my whole life. Let me say, it was like lifting a huge burden off my shoulders. Like a huge weight coming off. Because I recognised at that point that the one in the driver's seat really was the saviour of the world. And there's no one else who can provide security and meaning and who quenches my thirst. Amen.